Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Battlefield Earth. Sebastian and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. And on this episode we have a special guest, Mr. Richard Hamilton. Hi guys. We are thrilled to have you on the Ten Pole Trauma podcast, Richard. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for our listening audience? Yeah, well, I'm the one who's thrilled. I'm a huge fan of the show. So uh, if not the movie we're talking about today. <laughs> but uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer. I, I think probably the stuff I'm most well known for is um, I worked on the How to Train Your Dragon and Trollhunters franchises at DreamWorks for a few years. But I'm a huge comic fan. And so I uh, write comics. I've self-published. It's mostly for younger audiences, the stuff that I write now. I have a book out called Scoop. It's sort of like Veronica Mars meets X-Files. Cool. Uh, about a girl, a detective who's a TV a news intern in my hometown of Miami, Florida. So I have a couple volumes of that out. And I have a new book coming out uh, in the early part of 2022, sometime in January. It's called Fear Book Club. And that's sort of like an ambliny ghost story about a yearbook club at a middle school and they find out that there are um, kids that disappear from their school one a year, every year for the past hundred some years. Nobody knows why and nobody remembers. And if this yearbook club can't figure out why that's going on, then they just might disappear too. That sounds really fun. Yeah, I love it. That sounds great. Thanks. If I can make uh, some kids pee their pants while reading that, I'll feel (laughs) like I've done my job. That's what life is all about, making kids pee their pants. Yeah, simple pleasures. Well, we won't be making kids pee their pants on this episode. What we may make some listeners pee their pants (laughs) and not with excitement because we are discussing Battlefield Earth from 2000, the notorious bomb made from the L. Ron Hubbard novel and starring Scientologist John Travolta. Now, Richard, you actually came to us asking to speak about Battlefield Earth, which was super exciting because no one else in the our podcasting family <laughs> wanted to talk about it. <laughs> so we were thrilled to have you on. No one in my life wants to talk about it either. So that, that's why I had to reach out to you. 
Yeah, this is, uh, like I told you earlier, this feels very therapeutic for me to, to now be discussing this film with you guys. Yes, we are going to exercise the demons of Battlefield Earth, or at least exercise <laughs> the cyclos who are referred to <laughs> on occasion as demons. Now, what was so great about getting your email is that you have a pretty fascinating personal story uh, related to Battlefield Earth. I don't have much to say about my experience with Battlefield Earth. I remember it coming out in 2000, even though I was a big science fiction geek and still am. I could tell it was terrible right away, and I didn't bother seeing it in the theater. I think I saw it on um, video at first and was like, oh, this is as terrible as I imagined it to be. I know, Jennifer, this was your first time watching it, right? Absolutely. But not your last. Not my last. (laughs) (laughs) That's a threat. I actually watching it, I was kind of wishing that I had seen it in the theater because this is, wow, it's something else. No, you don't. Richard, please, can you relate your personal story of seeing Battlefield Earth in the theater? I, I will try. Uh, yeah, it was. I, I had just graduated from the University of Miami. I went to film school there. So my friends and I went to see it. They were all film students too. So admittedly, we're the kind of the, the most obnoxious audience you could have for a movie, a bunch of know-it-alls. But, you know, we'd seen the trailers. It did not look good. So we went to it thinking it was going to be, you know, have a good time, make fun of it. And we saw it at the uh, the lovely... Sunset Place movie theaters in South Miami. It had stadium seating. It was kind of like a newer theater in the area, good picture and sound quality. So we all went and about 30 minutes into the runtime, the screen, you know, the image stops and the house lights go up and there's sort of this weird, you know, kind of hubbub in the background. We look around and there's a woman standing up and a guy seated next to her looks like unconscious or unresponsive. And um, so this guy was either dead or dying and nobody did anything for the longest time. Like a full five minutes went by. And this is kind of like before everyone had cell phones. Finally, a manager comes in and says, don't worry, everyone. We're going to start the movie in a few minutes. And the (laughs) audience had a revolt and started screaming, we don't care about the movie. What about this man? Help this man. So a couple minutes after that, the paramedics arrive and they bring a stretcher up the stadium seating. They pull him on the stretcher. He's not moving, not breathing. And then they start carrying him down the (laughs) stadium, the steps, and they accidentally drop the gurney. And so the guy falls down and hits his head on the steps. Everyone is just freaking out at this point. And so they finally get the guy and he's just not moving. And so they get him back on the stretcher out of the theater And uh, true to the manager's word, the lights went down and they resumed the movie. (laughs) Actually, worse, they backed it up a few minutes. So, like, I guess to the beginning of the reel or something. So we had to to watch even more. And, yeah, we we stayed uh, till the end of the movie, I'm sad to say. Wow. That is mind-blowing. So what was the man dead? Did you ever find out? Well, uh, yeah. The crazy thing, though, is at the end of the movie, one of our friends is talking to this woman who seems really upset. And then I realized this was that man's wife or girlfriend. So she was still in the theater. So she stayed <laughs> to watch the rest of the movie, too. Oh, my God. Which I didn't feel quite so bad about myself after that. But it's like, well, go with this guy, you know, riding the back wow. of the ambulance or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, I've often said that this movie 
so bad that it killed someone. And I don't know if it's the movie's fault. It could have been an unrelated medical issue. No, it's the movie. It's the movie. Yeah, it's, it's the, the movie. Can you imagine if Battlefield Earth was one of the last things that passed before your eyes? <laughs> before stepping off this mortal plane? What a way to go. Yeah. <laughs> On that happy note. That story did not disappoint at all. Well, let me ask you this. Despite this incredibly traumatic experience, did you enjoy your viewing of Battlefield Earth? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I I mean, I like, you know, it's become a kind of an interesting story to dine out on since. But, you know, having watched it again for this podcast, and I think this is probably the only other time I've seen it the whole way through, it's like it is an objectively poorly made film. Again, like my friends and I went and saw this fresh out of film school. And so we were just at the time mystified by like the whole movie is shot at a Dutch tilt. Yes. There's like hundreds of center swipes and just like weird, weird choices and not like in a cool David Lynch Dune weird. This is just like, we just felt like we could have done a better job. I'm sure you could have. The Dutch angles are completely distracting. It feels like the movie was meant to be in a wider aspect ratio, but they just were like, well, we can't get it in that low, so we're just going to tilt the camera whenever to get whatever <laughs> background we can get in there. And there are times when you don't see things you're supposed to see because of the weird Dutch angles, like things are cut off by the frame and you're like, was I supposed to see something there? And like little bits of visual information are just completely lost by the the camera angles and by the weird editing choices. I mean, the editing in this is a crime against movie editing. That's another problem. I think anybody would agree with that. And all the terrible, like, early avid tricks and wipes and stuff they've got going are like, the actual nuts and bolts filmmaking of this movie is terrible. And I think that's kind of the main thing about it. It just looks so um, amateurish. And and those swipes take me out of it every time yeah. like every it's like i feel like it's like a kind of like watching a show that would be on the sci-fi channel or something like or i don't know it feels it feels like for what it is and who was involved i'm just like this just seems like it was an an exercise or something i don't know it's just it's really it was really a weird experience it just looks weird and i don't know like when the swipes happened i was like expecting a laugh track or something it was just really bizarre my favorite editing choice is i think it's a scene between turl and girl or whatever the hell uh Forrest, Forrest Whitaker. Whitaker. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker's character's name is Kerr. Kerr, <laughs> right? And Kerr says something and then it's like he's off to the side of the camera and then there's this kind of like slow-mo drop frame slow-mo and then he kind of freeze frames and then there's like a wipe or something. It's one of the most bizarre transitions I've ever seen in a movie. I know the one you're talking about and there's like a weird smile on Forrest Whitaker's face. Yeah, and like, yeah. yeah. It almost seemed like it was something that they just happen to record after a take and then just want like, oh, we need something. Let's put it in there. Jen, to your point, like it does feel like a sci-fi channel movie, but I feel like most of those are made with kind of a wink and a nod. Whereas this one, it feels like most of the people who at least behind the scenes were making it, were taking it pretty seriously. I can't, quite tell like where John Travolta is in all this like sometimes he seems to be having the best time in the world and he's chewing up all the scenery and it's got like this weird accent 
and other times he he seems fully committed to it. It's it's also a movie completely devoid of like insert shots, like to what you were saying, Sebastian. Like there's important information we don't see. It's kind of boring stuff, but like props being handed off to different characters. We don't see faces of characters before they die, and because yeah. All the aliens and all the humans have this long, shaggy hair. And because it's not so well lit, it's really hard to tell who's getting attacked or killed in any given moment. It's just it's a really baffling movie from start to finish. There were some times when you definitely wanted to. I mean, not just because I guess I'm a horror person and I'm, I'm like, why didn't they show this? But like there was someone's head that was going to explode and it exploded and it was like off screen. We didn't see anything. And I was like, wait, what yeah. did I miss it? Did I blink? Like what happened? Why didn't we get to see that at all? I have to think that there was a lot of sweaty editing going on with this movie. I imagine, and I have no information to back this up. I you know, read the wiki article, which was actually pretty amusing, but it does seem like it's, edited to an inch of its life and badly so it's badly edited to an inch of its life but it does feel like things are cut so quickly and the story moves so fast especially in the beginning that i have to imagine it was a much longer movie that cut down and then there's also a very obvious section of reshoots and the it's so obvious because barry pepper's hair yeah. <laughs> changes dramatically and then there's more story where his hair is magically grown back to being sort of long. And they even tried to like explain it with a story point where he, for no reason, cuts off like the lock off his hair. Because of something he did, this other human gets killed. And so to bake it up to that dead guy's brother, Barry Pepper cuts off some of his hair and hands it to the brother. Like, oh, here you go. Sorry about your brother. Here's my hair. Right. That would more than make up for it for me, I mean, personally. <laughs> Barry Pepper has some nice hair. Why don't we talk a little bit about the history and then we'll get into sort of the plot points of Battlefield Earth as such as they are. <laughs> as most people probably know, Battlefield Earth was written by L. Ron Hubbard, uh, the father and founder of Scientology. And it was published in 1982. Just a little personal story. <laughs> At one point, my friend Robert and I went to a bookstore, the bookstore that was near us in NoHo. Like, the Iliad. And they have a pretty good selection of books. And I saw Battlefield Earth. I'd never seen a paperback version of it. And I was like, ooh, Battlefield Earth. <laughs> because I've been going through this sort of phase where I'm trying to read the classics, quote unquote, of science fiction literature. Like I recently read a bunch of the Dune books and was really proud of myself for being a big boy and being able to actually get through them. So I was like, should I? And I like <laughs> grabbed it. It's a fucking long book too. Like you could kill somebody even with a paperback version by striking them in the back of the head. But I was like, Robert, should I? And Robert's like, do not buy that book. <laughs> so he talked me out of it. And I'm sure, I am sure I would never have gotten through it in a million years. I'm sure it's unreadable, but it's, it is considered a quote unquote classic of science fiction literature. But had you heard of the book before the movie came out? Because I had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so you didn't even know this was a book or that Scientology was related to it? I know in the trailers it said, you know, based off like one of the best selling sci-fi books of all time but you figured that was a lie of all time I, don't know. <laughs> I mean like you know i know dune i know isaac asimov i you know i've heard of a lot of things but you know that maybe that's just my failing it was something that was never on my radar but i did 
go and look online and there's a really beautiful Frank Frazetta cover of one of, I don't know if it was the original printing of Battlefield Earth or not, but it's like this really cool painting and the cyclo in it, I think it's supposed to be Turl, looks nothing like John Travolta does in the movie. It actually looks way cooler. I think anything probably looks way cooler. But, uh, you know, <laughs> A Frank Frazetta cyclo, I'm sure would be cooler than John Travolta's weird kiss reject yeah. cyclo. <laughs> But anyway, so the book was published in 1982, and of course, L. Ron Hubbard had big dreams of it being the next Star Wars. He would go around Hollywood and sort of say, well, I've written the next Star Wars, and they're going to make it into a movie one of these days. But they didn't before his death in 1986 anyway. But Travolta obviously is a Scientologist, and he was a friend of Hubbard, supposedly. And apparently he made the promise to Hubbard that he would see to it that the book would make it to the screen. And originally, of course, Travolta was going to play Johnny Goodboy Tyler, our protagonist. But he aged out of that, unfortunately. And so he decided to take the role of the villain Turl, which I think he's better suited for. I think we can all probably agree, at least on this, that if we're going to have to deal with a character named Turl, <laughs> it might as well be played by John Travolta in one of his most scenery-chewing moments of desperation in his career. So yeah, and that that was basically uh, you know how the movie got made. Eventually, Travolta just kept the dream alive and they you know kept rewriting the script over and over and over throughout the 90s you know reportedly Travolta tried to get Tarantino his buddy from Pulp Fiction to direct it at that point Travolta had heat again in his career and he was you know as soon as he got heat again in his career it was like right back to trying to leverage to use one of the terms in the right. movie a uh, movie version of Battlefield Earth and he eventually got it done through some shady producers and financing. And, you know, they shot it mostly in Canada. And, you know, he took a big pay hit to play the role. So that's how Battlefield Earth eventually happened in 2000. I mean, I appreciate that he he wanted to make this as like a promise he made to his friend and, and that he you know, stuck with it throughout all that time. Like, and the fact that he took a pay cut, I feel like at the time that this came out, Travolta's crew is probably still on a bit of an upswing, right? Like yeah. this is after Face Off and Broken Arrow and Pulp Fiction, obviously. So, you know, he was, I think, using what heat he had at the time to help kind of push this through and get it made. But I know you usually talk about the budget at the end of the episodes, but I feel like the budget of this was like not insignificant and yet, I don't see any of it on the screen. So I just wonder, like, these shady producers, where did that money go? I worked a little bit for the company New Image that became Millennium. They were doing a lot of that sort of foreign sales game that was um, really perfected by the Golan and Globus guys. They, the, the guys of New Image were actually, they worked with the Golan and Globus guys. So they had this whole thing where they were selling movies before a single frame gets shot in foreign territories and they end up making like the whole budget of the movie sometimes that way and I know one of the producers on this did that and he was sort of bragging around town that we've already made our budget back with the movie which was not true they had not made their budget back there has been a lot of uh, litigation and stuff after the movie came out where people investors didn't feel they were getting what they paid for or whatever so there's definitely been lawsuits and shit around this movie 
well, let's just tear the Band-Aid off the wound <laughs> then and talk in detail about Battlefield Earth, or as it's also known by its subtitle, A Saga of the Year 3000. A thousand years ago, the Cyclos came to the planet and they destroyed the planet, and now humanity is an endangered species. And that was a big sort of tagline for the movie was, man is an endangered species or something like that now. We're introduced to our hero, Johnny Goodboy Tyler, as played by Barry Pepper in some really nice blonde hair extensions. And we're seeing sort of the tribe that he lives in. And they're all talking about how they're going extinct or whatever. And, you know, they're afraid to leave because there's this monster that lives out there. And there's this sort of campfire scene where he's like dancing around saying, and there's monsters out there or whatever. It's kind of setting the stage right away way that okay we're kind of in trouble here because immediately you're sort of something's off yeah it's um it starts with not like the prettiest landscape shots of it's obviously canada but it's not i mean lord of the rings is only a year or two away right and there's yep. these great sweeping helicopter shots of new zealand and all that and so like not even the scenery is that pretty and then when we first see barry pepper it's not like the best heroic entrance ever you know like he's riding this horse kind of clumsily died down the side of a mountain and i mean he, he did it way better than i could but still it's like not the best introduction for a character and then i guess he was out looking for medicine for his father who is sick but he doesn't arrive right. in time and so one of the few women characters in the movie chrissy tells him you're too late your dad's dead and he gets mad and he throws something in the air but we don't see what it is and again, this is like an insert shot would have been super helpful. So it's just a very confusing place to start because you think, is this going to be something to do with like a father and son? No, it's not. And after that campfire scene that you're talking about, Johnny decides to go out to the wild for some reason. I'm not sure to hunt or to prove that the demons aren't real. Before he goes, Chris, Chrissy gives him a necklace that apparently his mother made and intended for him, but we don't even get a good shot of that. You mm -hmm. think, is this going to be something that comes up later on? No, not at nope. all. So there's like, it, it's so strange. The opening of this movie at once feels rushed, but also you're not given any important information at all. Exactly. And it, that whole campfire scene where Johnny is trying to get the people, the townspeople, the village people on his side He's like throwing dirt in their faces and he's dancing around them. He's like not doing the best things he can to be getting them on his side. You know, it's sort no. of strange tactics there. I don't even think Johnny gets name checked until about 45 minutes into the movie. He definitely doesn't. And the fact that his name is Good Boy Tyler, I'm pretty sure never gets mentioned at all no. in the movie. No. That's from the book, obviously. One of the few wise choices they made when adapting the <laughs> book to film. I mean, I think the idea, and I'm extrapolating here, is that, you know, he doesn't want to accept that mankind is going to go extinct and, you know, the village is fearful and doesn't want to go out into the world. And so I think we're supposed to take it that because he's brave and wants to go out, that he's going to somehow become this hope for mankind. I mean, 
Again, I'm extrapolating, but I think that's what the movie wants us to feel. That's some real extrapolation. <laughs> Look, I relate to Johnny Goodboy Tyler, okay? <laughs> I've been feeling a little hopeless, and I want to just go out there and save mankind, okay? But w one thing that I do enjoy, and I'm going to try to give some props here, I'm a big fan of post-apocalyptic movies one of the best things about post-apocalyptic fiction is the sort of repurposing of things and like oh you think it's this thing but it's not because the ancients have left these here or whatever and so when johnny goes out into the to the world he runs into the monster that everybody's afraid of and it's just like a silly cartoonish dinosaur statue in like a amusement park or I think something. It's like a mini golf. Yeah. I'm not going to say a lot of nice things about the movie, but I do appreciate their post-apocalyptic ethos, especially at the beginning. You know, they're doing some fun things. He runs into these other two guys who are other tribesmen from some other tribes. And by the way, this is all taking place in the Rocky Mountains, which they don't ever say. We're going to later end up in Denver which I think is sort of a bizarre setting for a post-apocalyptic story, but whatever. I think uh, that um, L. Ron Hubbard had lived in Denver for a while and was fond of the area, so that's why we get this. Interestingly, Waterworld, also uh, the sunken city in that is also Denver, so I don't know, some weird post-apocalyptic Denver connections. There. And I think isn't Kim Coates in both uh, movies? He plays Carlo in this. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I remember when I first saw this movie, I only really knew Kim Coates from Waterworld. So I was like, boy, that guy sure loves to be in post-apocalyptic movies. That's like his thing. He found his lane early on and he stuck with it. But I will say that I, Kim Coates might be my favorite actor in the movie. He, I, I do love Kim Coates and I'm, I appreciate him here. Yeah, I'm always happy to see him show up. And I like when um, Johnny, which I have to just say now, like, Yes, it's definitely, Richard, it's definitely at least 45 minutes into the film before we know his name. There, like, you don't get a lot of names at all. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of name references or introductions or anything like that. So that in my mind, I'm, I'm calling just Kim Coates. I'm like, oh, I, I'm calling him Tig in my mind because of his character from Sons of Anarchy. And then I'm like, you know, it's, oh, it's John Travolta and Forrest Whitaker. Like I, I never even knew their names. I do appreciate also uh, agreeing with you, Sebastian, when they come into the city where they go to the mall, Kim Coates is telling him about, you know, the days of past and that there was the golden arches, like he's describing McDonald's and, and something yeah. else. Yeah. Like there was something else too. That was like another fast food chain or something else, a pop culture reference. Oh, and then that the statues are gods that misbehaved or something, or they did something wrong. Yeah, they got like frozen kind of like Medusa statues or whatever. That's kind of fun. That's that's probably the only really compliment I have to. Yeah, I always get a kick of that stuff. And I thought there was some moments that gave me sort of like a, oh, that's kind of yeah. fun. That's kind of clever smirks. You got to enjoy them when they come up in this movie. Got to take the wins wherever they are. Yeah. <laughs> By the end of the movie, you've got virtually nothing to hold on to. So I'm taking what I can get here in the <laughs> mm -hmm. beginning. They're talking about all, all the gods and everything, and they think that the stars are the gods and right. all this stuff. But Johnny Boy kind of knows intuitively that they're not. But that's when they are sort of attacked at the mall by the cyclos. At one point, like Johnny's running away and he's running through all these 
plate glass windows. There's like five of them. <laughs> you see everyone. Yeah, it's directly a homage or ripoff or whatever you want to call it of Blade Runner, the scene where Rick Deckard chases uh, Zora through a bunch of plate glass windows. But like they sort of set it up in that at one point Johnny Boy like walks into a plate glass window but it's so terrible because the plate glass window he almost walks into is like covered in like dust and schmutz it's like even if you'd never seen glass before in your life you would clearly see there's a barrier there well they even call glass godstone earlier in the movie yeah carlo which is i think kim Coates's character yes. hands johnny a dagger and the blade is made of glass and so okay that's godstone so technically, Johnny's crashing through five Godstone like, glass windows, but whatever. And also has zero scratches on his body after that, when the cycle is cart him away after no cuts, anything. Mm-hmm. I guess my, yeah. my two biggest problems with this movie are, one, Johnny is not a great protagonist. He kind of does everything wrong throughout the whole movie, which it's hard to get behind him. And the other is I have a really hard time figuring out the chronology or the timeline of like, when did the cyclos arrive? You kind of don't know, like, when did they invade Earth? How sophisticated was our military then? Like they talk about the invasion only lasted nine minutes. So they wiped the floor with humans. But because I don't have sort of that base level understanding of when they took over, and it sounds like they've been here for at least a thousand years. What have they been doing in all that time? Right. The cyclos base doesn't look that well built out. All the Earth cities are completely destroyed, even though the mini golf place is in pretty good shape. It's like (laughs) fared better than Denver did. (laughs) Um, So it's just I'm I'm so confused by all that, that all the plot points that are happening afterwards, I like I can't even pay attention to them. It's just further confusion. You know what I think it really comes down to is table setting. Like this movie Mm. does a terrible job of table setting on every level, not just from the story level, but just in the scene. You never get a shot where you see where everything is. Like it's always medium tight shots with a Dutch angle that's sort of making you feel disoriented just because of that when you're introduced to a scene you're never shown the things that you need you need to be shown you're just thrown right in there story wise it's like they cut all of that at stuff out of the movie or something but we should say that the director of this movie is Richard no that's <laughs> don't you dare <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry you should sign off angrily right now <laughs> and transmission I think it's Roger Christian. That's what it is. Yes. We should lay the blame where it belongs, and that is with the director, Roger Christian. Um, I looked him up on IMDb, and really what he's known for most of all is being a second unit director for a lot of the Lucasfilm stuff. Like he did a bunch of second unit on a bunch of the Star Wars movies, including, I think, Phantom Menace, which had been shot the year before. You know, and, he, and he's done, he's has directed a bunch of movies and he's directed movies since this, wow. which is miraculous. Like talk about getting a second chance when you don't deserve it. But uh, he was mostly known as a second unit guy, which is really 
kind of shocking that the direction here is as bad as it is because you know second unit guys know how to direct you'd think there'd be some more technical proficiency and the reason i know his name is i was you know doing a little due diligence before we talked about this and he explained the reason there's all the dutch angles in the movie was that he was trying to replicate comic book panels and i i'm very offended by that because i love comics not every panel in a comic book is a Dutch no. angle. Very few are. And so not every shot in this movie should be a Dutch angle. Then that's why he has all those swipes then too, because that was also reminding me of like a comic type thing with the, the screen. Like that's that's what he was thinking then, right? If that's what he was his... I guess. I feel like what he was thinking was comics equals the Batman 60s TV show. Yeah. The Batman 60s TV show made prodigious use of Dutch angles, but that's not really what comic books look like. I mean, yeah, comic books can show things in all sorts of angles, but Dutch angles aren't favored in comics. I don't know where he was getting this idea. I don't either. Like, especially not in modern comics. And it's not like Battlefield Earth started out as a comic. Right. It was a novel. Yeah. So it just is a really odd choice. I feel like it's just to hide the fact that the sets aren't as good as they could be. And another crime this movie commits just on a visual level is excessive use of tinting. You know, oh. there there's lots of sequences where it's just really blue and the only alternate color you get is sort of the yellow eyes mm -hmm. of the contact lenses that the, the cyclos wear or there's long stretches where it's just all green. You know, I mean, this was a thing in the early 2000s. We sort of talked about it a little bit in our last episode, but. Just the overdoing of post-production coloring and whatnot. And it's one of the most sort of egregious visual gaffes that I feel like this movie commits. Even the scene that we were just talking about where Johnny gets taken by the Cyclos, as soon as the Cyclos appear, everything takes on this neon green tint. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Like when it first happens, it, it is visually arresting. Like they even strip down the the soundtrack you know so everything seems kind of distant and I'm trying to imagine would be like if i'm sort of a primitive human that survived the apocalypse and then these big aliens that i've never seen before come and take me you know how would i feel in that moment i they kind of do a good job in that moment but then after like the third or fourth like glass window that johnny falls through it's gone again. <laughs> There's not like a good consistency to it. So you start, you feel just sort of like they're doing it arbitrarily a lot of the times. Yeah, that's right. It's not like every time you see the Cyclos, there's that color palette. I don't even know that we ever see it again. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I feel like maybe I'm jumping around a little, but that may just also be a function of the movie because it's sort of jumping all over the place. But I've seen it a couple of times now and I just want to make sure I understand. So this is only like maybe less than 10 minutes of screen time that have passed, right? So yep. the movie starts, we see Johnny and his village. It doesn't look that great over there. They're all starving. They have no hope. Johnny decides to leave his village either because he's upset about his dead father or he doesn't believe in the idea of demons and gods going away or he wants to hunt or whatever. He leaves. He meets up with Kim Coates and another guy. They go to blast it out. Denver for whatever reason and then while they're hiding out in a mall the cyclos appear they kill one of those guys and they somehow subdue Kim Coates 
and Johnny. Don't they go to Denver later? Yeah, they're not in Denver in the mall. Denver is covered in a dome. Oh, okay. Denver's later. Because, yeah, they had to walk. And if they're in the rock, well, the Rocky Mountains, I guess that is in Colorado, right? Like Aspen. You know, all those Rocky Mountain malls yeah. they have up there. They've got <laughs> some great malls up there in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, it seemed, I, I don't know. I felt like they, when they went to Denver later, they, like, had to fly there or something. You know they're in Denver because if they're humans, they have to have the little dumb nose plugs yeah and if the cyclos are out of the denver then they have to wear the nose plugs i was really following the nose plugs <laughs> this time i watched it like on all my other viewings of it i was just like what do they have shoved in their nose and like why does john travolta have this shoved in his nose in this scene but then barry pepper's got one shoved in his nose in the next scene this time i really tracked it it's because the cyclos cannot breathe our normal air okay that's why in denver which is their base of operations there's a quote-unquote dome. It's really more, it looks like a giant greenhouse trapezoid. trapezoid rooftop over the entire city, which the city, even though they've been there a thousand years, it's still in a post-apocalyptic state. Like, to your point, the Cyclos fucking suck at rebuilding shit. Like, if you had to be on this planet, and the Cyclos are constantly talking about how shitty our planet is, our planet would be pretty awesome if it was post-apocalyptic i mean just take down the buildings and put up something cool like there's lots of stuff you could do they've been there a thousand years and they've got all this advanced technology you mean to tell me they couldn't have just built their own cool future city there and they're still just hanging out in the bombed out wastelands there are so many shots of the cyclos just standing around or sitting around and doing nothing they're kind of like the teamsters of the universe <laughs> they just don't do anything unless they're directed to so that's what they've been doing for a thousand years just sitting around complaining about how bad earth is they keep referring to like their um i don't know their hierarchy or whatever is like corporate they refer to it as corporate or whatever. Yes. So it's like these are dead weight people in the corporation that are just like not doing anything. They're just hanging out. I definitely think there's supposed to be some anti-corporate satire yeah. there about how like, oh, look at these yahoos. There's all this bureaucracy like they keep talking about. Like I forget what the actual term is, but they do talk about the corporation. But there's there's some other like corporate term they use to describe their superiors or whatever. I do love the scene where the one superior shows up who we thought was Clancy Brown. Yes. who's not. <laughs> this is actually kind of my favorite scene in the movie because we've been introduced to John Travolta as Turl, our main villain who looks like a rejected member of kiss like with Rob zombie hair. And you know, he's got a, a crazy beard and everything. And his right hand man is Kerr. Turl is the security chief of this post in Denver and Curl is his deputy. So Turl really hates this place and he's talking about how he's going to get off soon like he's you know he's going on retirement. In fact, when the ship shows up with the the slaves they've captured of whom Johnny Goodboy Tyler and uh his best new buddy Carlo is are one of them, they come charging out and they Johnny shoots one of the cyclos or whatever. And so Turl's like, oh, he's impressed with Johnny that he was able to do that. But he's also like, if you guys are going to play a going away joke, like, <laughs> don't waste my time or whatever. So he's really establishing that he's sick and tired of this bullshit and he's ready to get off. And, and you know, he's establishing what a raging asshole he is. But it's also establishing that the Cyclos are 
guilty of wildly underestimating humans. They're always like, oh, these human animals. No, man animals. Yeah, these man animals can't do anything. They're stupid. They can't figure anything out. And it's definitely reminiscent of the original Planet of the Apes, because in the original Planet of the Apes, the apes just think stupid humans can't do anything. And that's, of course, their downfall in many ways. But the cyclos are even worse. But yet they have human slaves. And maybe, Richard, you can help me out with this. So they don't trust humans to mine gold, but they have all these human slaves. What are they using humans for then? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I wish I could help you. I wish I could help any of us. I have no idea. I mean, again, it's like <laughs> this thing just, it's questions within questions within questions. Like, why do they need the slaves? Because as you said, they so undervalue man animals, right? But then also, all things considered, they treat their slaves kind of well. Like in Johnny's village, everyone's wearing rags and they're starving. But as slaves, they get these drab green jumpsuits, jumpsuits but at least they're clothes. And they get fed this gruel <laughs> through this like hose at least once a day, maybe twice. They have roofs over the head. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't even know where to begin with this. Like it's it the, the village sucks. The cyclo citadel sucks. Like when we see the cyclo planet, that looks really bad, too. There's no... <laughs> Yeah. There's nowhere in this movie I want to live. There's nothing aspirational. No. So if I if I was Johnny, I would just kill myself. If I was any of these characters, <laughs> I'd just kill myself and be done with it. 100%, Richard. 100%. I also um, need to understand, and maybe one of you can explain this to me, but with the Cyclos, it seems like it's it's a hierarchy of some sort, but like... For lack of a better description, like John Travolta and Forrest Whitaker and the guy who I thought was Clancy Brown and like some of the other higher ups seem to have more human faces where these other cyclos seem to look more alien like or I don't know, like otherworldly. But why? Yeah, that's not explained at all. Okay. We see a dead one in a coffin when, later when John Travolta is putting gold bars into a coffin to sneak them out. And we'll get to the gold bar <laughs> thing because that, <laughs> that whole subplot is completely baffling. But we see some sort of like less evolved looking cyclo or more evolved. I don't know. Yeah, they look more cat-like. It's like they just decided that they were going to put prosthetics on some of their faces but not others. I think if you're a movie star like John Travolta, you don't get the prosthetics. You got to you got to show off that mug. I completely agree. It's very inconsistent. And I'm like a junkie for world building. And there's no uniformity or cohesiveness to any of this. Also, the number of fingers that they have on their hands. So the, the cyclos, in case anyone's listening, this didn't see the movie, which I assume is going to be most of your listeners. The cyclos, <laughs> like you said, Sebastian, they look like members of KISS, but they're they're humanoid, right? Like they're, yeah. they're, they're largely human. They're like 10 feet tall. They're clearly walking on stilts and they have big dreads, but they also have these big hands that are furry and have fingernails and they're not very well articulated. And in some of the shots, I think they have six fingers on each hand and in other shots, they only have five. It kind of reminded me of that SNL um, commercial parody handy offer. Victoria Jackson has like extra fingers on her hand and then she paints on this this solution that makes them dissolve and rot off. It's like the cyclos really needed the handy off. And but that's not even the worst thing about them. Can we talk about their units? 
the cod pieces. All the cyclos have these enormous bulges. Oh my God. It's so distracting. It's so distracting. It just, I was like, I watched the movie earlier and we try not to talk because we're like, you know, save it for the podcast. I'm like, what is happening? Like, this is vulgar. <laughs> like, this is like, so like, I can't stop looking. It's just so in your face. It's so, ah. No one needed that. And it's not just they have cod pieces. They clearly have molded in, you know, packages (laughs) behind the cod piece. Like you can see like detailing almost. It's really upsetting. No, total detailing. (laughs) And it's just like, this is where you chose to give us details. I needed so many more details throughout this film. And we're going to get the detail. Like I'm missing so much, but let's get this. They went all in on the cod pieces. They went all in. (laughs) That was somebody's job to sculpt that, remember? That's that. right. That's right. Well, I'll tell you, they did one hell of a job because it's, it's memorable. <laughs> they did. And because the cyclos, the actors are like on stilts, right, to look taller than the regular humans, it yes. means that the cod pieces are closer to everyone else's eye line. So it's really hard to, when it's in the frame, it's all, or at least all I'm looking at anyway. You can't unsee it. That's it. It's no, it's no. all. It's all it is. Yes, we we're all we we're all captivated by the cod pieces. Not to move the conversation too far away from the cyclos penises, <laughs> but one thing that really hurts this movie is the same year as uh, Richard pointed out, we were going to get the first uh, Lord of the Rings film, and one of the big innovations and in special effects that that film did was that had characters of different scale interacting really effectively with each other. The hobbits were downsized to be smaller and, you know, the the human sized characters were bigger. This movie does it so poorly because it's just John Travolta on stilts or, or Forrest Whitaker on stilts. So when there's human characters in the shot or whatever, they're clearly just either like kneeling down or whatever like when he grabs them by the neck you can clearly see that Barry Pepper's head is the same sort of basic size as John Travolta's head they don't do any sort of force perspective tricks or anything like that it's just hey we'll put some guys on stilts and the rest will just be normal like that'll pull off the whole size discrepancy it's so ungainly the way that like John Travolta and Forrest Whitaker walking it just looks uncomfortable for everyone not good they make them do that even in scenes where it's all other cyclos like they're still all on stilts it's like you don't need to do it when there's no one else to (laughs) offset the scale but whatever which brings me to the scene my favorite scene in the movie and that is the the dressing down of turl when he's thinking he's getting off this damn island and his superior shows up. And I don't know who this guy is. I couldn't figure it out on IMD, but I just love his performance because he's like, you're not getting off here in five cycles. You're not getting off here for 50 cycles. <laughs> and then even when those are up, we have, the company has the option to renew endlessly forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so awesome. The way this guy delivers these lines is just a pure, pure joy for me. And Travolta's face as he's just like hearing all this because he is like, as you mentioned earlier, was all set to go and retire and live large back on his planet. And in that like, I'm getting ready to leave a job, zero fucks type thing. Yeah. And now he's just found out he's never 
going to leave and his face his reaction to it is pretty great the whole the whole it's all great. due to an incident involving the senator's daughter how should i have known it was the senator's daughter and the whole bureaucracy corporation element of it it's just so like this is not what you want in a science fiction <laughs> fantasy movie you don't want bureaucracy it's not fun note to all sci-fi fantasy writers and world builders bureaucracy is boring leave it out of your movie it's boring in real life it's yeah. boring in movies yeah. too but I, I sebastian i think you were right you know when this book came out it was very early 80s there's obviously like an anti-corporate message or under underlined to this whole thing and there are so many scenes in this movie that have to do with semantics and like how Turl yes. in particular, he's in an earlier scene, he's talking to a bartender and the bartender was giving him information. And Turl said, as long as you're not giving me information, I won't uh, throw you under the bus or have you killed. And there's just, it's like this really tortured long exchange. And the whole point of it is that Turl just doesn't keep his word. And it's all about semantics with him. It leads into the next thing that I wanted to discuss, which was this idea of leverage, which just gets hammered over and over and over. Basically, every scene with Turl and Kerr is about one upping each other or Turl one upping one of the superiors or because he's got leverage this kind of leverage or that kind of leverage and this is sort of when the uh the picto what are they the picto the cameras, picto cameras. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to all the other kinds of cameras out there right yeah like <sighs> these cameras take pictures oh how advanced other... <laughs> no wonder they beat us in nine minutes <laughs> you mean it's a camera that takes pictures give up guys we can't possibly stand against this technology but yeah so there's cameras everywhere and this is mainly because I guess the cyclos just love to catch other cyclos doing bad things or saying things that they shouldn't because the whole I guess social currency of cyclos is leverage over people. Mm -hmm. So you just got to get something on someone and then you can use it against them and get somewhere. But it's all so childish. Like it's not like cool, like in game of Thrones or yeah. something where it's like cleverly thought out. It's just literally like, Oh, I'm going to get you to say something. I'm going to capture it on the pictogram. And then I'm going to like, threaten you that they'll send this to our superiors and then they'll have you vaporized that's the whole way things are done i guess in cyclo non-stop blackmailing no artifice to any of it though like they they say like i'm gonna take a video of you and blackmail you and then they do exactly that and then the person who's being blackmailed is like what you can't blackmail me what are you doing i wanted a scene where it would be like turl's like I've got you on camera saying that I'm going to blackmail you. And then Forrest Whitaker would say, oh, but I got you on <laughs> camera saying that you uh, you are going to blackmail me. And then I'm going to blackmail you with that. Well, I've got you on camera say like on and on ad nauseum until you lose your mind. But that's basically all of their scenes is like 
this idea of leverage, like Turl's trying to teach Kerr how to use leverage. And then later in the movie, Kerr thinks he's got some leverage on Turl, but then Turl's got more leverage on him. Ha ha. Or whatever. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it is about semantics a hundred percent also, because like it, there's a, a particular moment later in the film where, you know, Turl says, you know, to somebody, I won't kill you or whatever. And then he's like, and then he has Forrest Whitaker do it. And he's like, see, I, I said I wouldn't do it, you know, but he had like Forrest Whitaker do it. He does like, that's a, like a reoccurring thing throughout there as well. That was such an obvious, you see that coming yeah. a mile away, like I won't kill you or whatever. One of my favorite things that happens that involves the picto cameras is once Turl is sort of taken an interest in Johnny because Johnny's shown that he knows how to use a gun, Turl's like, hmm, I can get Johnny and his friends to mine my gold illegally or whatever. And so what he does to gain leverage on Johnny is he lets them escape or whatever and then watches them because he wants to see what their favorite oh food is. <laughs> Yeah, what they're yeah, and he tells uh, Kerr that he'll be able to be, through the pictogram, pictocam, pictogram, whatever. Picto camera rolls off the tongue. Just rolls right off. Uh, so yeah, he tells Kerr that he'll be able to see when he like sets them loose and they're out on their own that they're going to go immediately to get their favorite food. To get their favorite food in the post-apocalyptic world. Like, you're just going to go and get your favorite, like, do they even have a favorite food? Like, they just, like, they need to eat. Like, that's it. And so, anyway, it's just that the whole, like. Turl would be watching me go to a burned out Popeye and just stand there. <laughs> <laughs> Look through the window, sadly. With your hands pressed up against the, <laughs> the, the, the glass. Right. There's, what like, how many things can they possibly go to eat? There's right. nothing out there. Like, no. it's not going to be their favorite anything. They don't have a favorite. Like when you're starving, you just fucking eat. It's like there's no favorite. One, they never even show Turl or any of the other cyclos releasing Johnny and the other humans. Yeah. They're just out. So like, we don't know how that happened, but whatever. We later find out that the cyclos have learning machines where they store everything they know and they can put it in other people's minds. And I guess cyclos can learn from these machines too. And Turl even knows like where where does he take Johnny to later? It's like the Library of Congress or something like he takes him to the Denver Public Library first. But Johnny does end up in the Library of Congress later. That's There's what two is. libraries in this movie. There's two library scenes. So but Turl like knows what libraries are and he has like some sense of humans. So like why does he need to watch them in the wild to see what they eat? Why can't he just look in a book <laughs> or turn on the learning machine and learn what humans like to eat? And the whole thing is, it's like a setup of this weird gag that because they're released into the wild and I guess they're in one of the colder peaks of the Rockies, they can't find any real food other than rats and they don't have the materials necessary to build a fire. So they eat raw rats. And then this just becomes a running gag through the rest of the movie that's never really funny at any point. But it's funny at one point. It did make me laugh out loud at one point when you're talking about the learning machines and he's like, 
got him like strapped to the learning machine or whatever, and he's not learning fast enough or, or performing the way he wants to. And he says, don't you want to eat lunch? And he's holding yeah, like right. the rat, <laughs> like Adam, like, don't you want to eat lunch or don't you want any lunch or something right. like that? And it's just like one quick cut of that. And then we cut away and it was just like, what? What just happened? You're laughing so hard. You're clutching yeah. your, your stomach because it's so funny that you're not worried that we're cutting right to the next scene. Yeah, it was that might be my favorite part of the, the film because it just like was so random. Well, and it does give us the term rat brain, which Troll yeah. right. calls uh, Johnny and all the other man animals for the rest of the movie ad nauseum. If this is a drinking game. We would all die of alcohol poisoning within five minutes. He puts Johnny into the learning machine, which is just, you know, okay, this is how we're going to have our characters be able to figure out how to defeat the enemies without having to actually do any story work. But, you know, whatever, I'll roll with it. As long as it gets us to the end quicker, I'm okay. Yeah, so Johnny becomes super smart, and now he can speak Cyclo, and they try to do, like, a hunt for Red October moment where he's learned how to speak Cyclo, and they, he's talking Cyclo, and then they just mix it into normal English so we get it that, oh, now they can understand each other or whatever. Really poorly done, but... He can speak Cyclo now, but like he can't figure out how to load one of their guns. Like he's learned all this stuff, but he and the boys all go and grab guns and then they hold them on Turl and Kerr and they're trying to get leverage on them or whatever. And then Turl just grabs the gun and is like, you don't even know how to load it or whatever. Yeah, a Cyclo never, uh, never hangs up a loaded gun or whatever it's uh, whatever but also is this this wait because when he's doing all his learning like doesn't he goes back to the the prison cell that all the guys are in and he's like totally having a beautiful mind moment where he starts trying to explain geometry to them oh yeah and i was like what is happening and i was so glad that kim Co uh, carlo said like how is this going to help us escape? Because he's like, he's like talking about the triangle has to be three equidistant signs. It's just going into all this stuff. And they're like, they're just kind of like, what, how is this helpful? And I was like, yes, how is this helpful? How is this going to get you out of here? Yeah. He's drawing this all on the floor of the cell, like all these sort of like equations and Leonardo da Vinci yeah. type <laughs> charts. Johnny was hyped on learning. So what results out of this all? of this nonsense is this crazy scheme that Turl has to bribe his way back to the planet Cyclo. Not only are they called Cyclos, but they're from the planet Cyclo. So for whatever reason, Turl can't just mine gold legally from the mountains because I guess the mountains are irradiated or something and the radiation can affect the, the cyclos as well as the humans. And that's why at the end, when that one character brings the atomic bomb or whatever to cyclo and blows it up, it blows up the whole planet because like all of their air apparently will just immediately go on fire if any sort of radiation affects it. Uh, I only know this because I read it in the Wikipedia. <laughs> I had to rewind this part a couple of times and keep watching it to see because it just I felt like I had a stroke. Like these people were talking. <laughs> nothing made sense to me. So what I was able to cobble together is that the uranium that's in the mountains where there's also gold, there's gold and uranium in these mountains. 
the uranium will ignite their breath gas. That's what they call the air they breathe, breath gas. And then that yes. will blow their head <laughs> gaskets, which I think are the little metal circles on the sides of their heads. Ah, okay. But okay. again, what have they been doing on this planet for, let's say, a thousand years? Like, it, they, right. they were here to get gold, right? Right. And so they haven't been mining gold from this mountain because there's it's radioactive. And as we later find out, they haven't gone to, like, Fort Knox or any other gold uh, repositories on the world. So where are they getting the gold? What have they been doing? This is just these are the laziest aliens. They've done nothing. Their productivity sucks. Like the corporation should be really upset about their productivity. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but shouldn't the uranium also be harmful to the humans? Like how does sending yes. humans in there, they're going to die before they get any of the gold out. It's I know it's ridiculous to be trying to make sense of all this, like nobody else bothered. So why should we? But I just right. <laughs> I just can't give up the ghost on Turl's plan. I need to know. I need to have some kind of meaning from all this. And I'm just not getting it. Well, yeah, not only is this plan completely inexplicable and bad, but in order <laughs> to enact it, he has to teach these human slaves that he thinks so little of how to fly their own like hovercrafts or That's whatever right. you want to call them. So like we get this scene where he's teaching Johnny how to fly and we're seeing this sort of really bad virtual environment that he's flying around in. And yeah, and then he's going to just let them go mine this mountain or whatever with no supervision. For 14 days. He's leaving them there for 14 days. He's like, I'll be back in 14 days. You better have all my gold. And yet the, the crate has to be half full with gold in 14 days. Why yeah. not leave them there for 28 days and have the crate completely full? Whatever. But they're, they're, he is supervising them because there is another picto camera in the sky that passes right, over the right. mine at the same time every day. So that's how Johnny and the other humans know to like kind of play hooky and go visit other parts of the world in the cyclo aircraft. Also, what's really terrible here is there's no sort of ticking clock. In Turl's case, we've taken the ticking clock away. Like he was about to get off. Like you, you could have made his motivation all the more stronger if it was like, oh, I'm supposed to get off of the planet. Oh, no, you have to stay on like one more cycle and get this amount of gold or whatever. And so now he really wants them to do it. But no, like he's stuck here forever. I guess he thinks he can leverage this gold into getting him <laughs> off or whatever. But there's no time limit to anything like you're saying. Why not give them 28 days? Who cares? Just get me all the gold you can. Like time means nothing at this point. And then the crazy thing is, is that Instead of just mining for the gold, they decide to go to Fort Knox mm -hmm. and steal gold from there, yep. <laughs> passing it off as the gold they're supposed to be mining from the mountain. <laughs> and it's now in gold bars. <laughs> and so Turl shows up and he's like, why are they in bars? And like, I don't know, Johnny gives him some half-ass excuse. Oh, no, he says, like, isn't this how this would be best presented? Well, like a, a cyclo of your stature. Could, could, would, I couldn't present it any other way than in bar form. Right. And that's good enough for Turl, so. Well, no, then Turl goes, well, if you've had time to smelt it, then I expect <laughs> there to be a full. He's such a taskmaster. He, and he's, like, really 
sassy too. But this is where I think you get a little bit of a ticking clock where it's like now you have a week to fill the cage all the way up with gold. And so that accelerates Johnny's plan, I guess, if you want to call it that. Yeah. So while they're getting gold out of Fort Knox, they also fortuitously come across like a a hidden military base where there's just all these Harrier jets and nuclear (laughs) bombs and whatnot. And so Johnny like gives them all of his like savage uh, friends a crash course on like flying Harrier jets and setting off nuclear bombs or whatever. I mean, there's literally this other tribe that has joined in that is like complete savages that wear like animal skins and have war paint. And their leader is uh, played by um, Richard Tyson. From Three O'Clock High. Yeah, played by Richard Tyson from the great 80s comedy Three O'Clock High. I I appreciated seeing him. He plays the bully in that movie. But at one point he's like wearing like a ferret on his head or some (laughs) shit. It's pretty great. I kind of liked that tribe. And you know what his character name is though? The, this the leader of the savage tribe of of primitive humans, Robert. Wow! It's just Robert. At least according to the subtitles in Netflix, that's the other thing. Like all the humans <laughs> have names like Johnny, Chrissy, Robert. Like it, this is a thousand years in a post apocalyptic hellscape. They could have come up with something a little cooler, but that's Robert. Robert. <laughs> Robert's tribe, they, for whatever reason, Johnny assigns them to fly the Harrier jets, and there is a flight simulator. I think it's in Fort Hood. So they've gone from Fort Knox to Fort Hood. They're hitting all the forts, Uh and now they're in Fort Hood. And somehow this flight simulator has power, even though the rest of the world doesn't. But fine, whatever, we'll go with it. And somehow Johnny, using the Cyclo learning machine, it's taught him how to operate earthling nuclear weapons and jets and things. Okay. So well that he can then pass on this information <laughs> flawlessly to people who have been hunting with spears for the last right. for generations upon generations. Yep, this is all this is all making perfect sense. Side note, they did actually make action figures of this movie, believe it or not. And back in the day, I bought a couple of them <laughs> and I think I lost them but I had this guy I had the guy uh, Robert Robert <laughs> I don't believe he was called Robert on the bubble packaging but uh, I had that character because I was just like huh I like this guy who's wearing the ferret or whatever I thought he was cool uh, I'm sad that he's no longer with us he might be in a box somewhere I don't know he might be like at the very very bottom of a moldy cardboard we box we gotta find Robert but what this military base inspires our hero to do is now they can take back the planet they can and they can not only take back the planet like the whole planet not only that but they can also destroy the cyclos planet like this whole time it was just that easy to do all they needed to do was find this military base and get a little knowledge and now they are ready to revolt we haven't talked a lot about love interests there's a pretty heartfelt love story going on in this movie i think we'd all agree the one between Johnny and Chrissy, because Chrissy comes back into the picture because Turl has just magically captured the one 
girl that he gives a shit about and the whole planet, like not knowing that they even have any sort of connection at all as to my understanding. Like he's just like, I found this human woman. Do you care about her? And he's like, no. He's like, I think you do. (laughs) He had um, a drawing that, that Johnny had done of her and like given it to her. And so like somehow he knew that like you drew this. No, I don't even think it was necessary a drawing of her it was just that Johnny liked to draw and she had a drawing on her yeah. so he's like you like to draw well she had a drawing so you must like her you must be in love Turl recognized his art style only one man animal could cross hatch like this Johnny good boy <laughs> Tyler well I mean we can't be too hard on Turl because he doesn't really seem to know much about love he is visited for in a completely oh, yeah. useless scene, has nothing to do with anything. He is visited by Kelly Preston as a female cyclo. She's one of only, I think, three female cyclos that we see in the whole movie. Obviously, Kelly Preston is John Travolta's wife, so that's why she's here. And she's, you know, done up in this crazy makeup with this like, sort of like Klingon forehead and shit. And at one point, you know, she's being sexually provocative and she sticks out this really elongated tongue (laughs) and he's like, ooh, and that sadly was actually in the trailer for the movie. I remember seeing the trailer for that and that was like a big selling point when she went, You're like, this will bring in the kids. It's one of the, the few rays of light in this movie. I actually like it's it's I think it's intentionally funny. So like yes. I and, you know, yeah. they're obviously they were I, I think she's since passed away. But, yeah. you know, they were obviously married and together at that time. And so they're they're having fun together. But there's kind of this weird undercurrent to the movie where all the female, the cyclo female characters are referred to as like ex-wives who have gotten ugly and I'm going to kill them or they are consorts or they're like just kind of like arm candy. It's just one of the many weird things about this movie, but especially watching it today and and seeing like there's not the, the female characters don't really get a lot of lot to do. Not super progressive. And you have to wonder <laughs> if like if this ports over to Scientology in some way or whatever. I mean, even the whole leverage thing, I'm like, is this like a Scientology thing? There's lots of weird stuff in this movie where just because of the Scientology, the connection to Scientology, you're like, is this in Dianetics? Like uh, this, I don't know too much about what's actually in Scientology, but I do know there's a lot of sort of sci-fi ish concepts. And I do know that Scientologists like to blackmail people. So I am kind of wondering if the uh, leverage thing is. I've wondered the same thing. Like, I don't want to offend anyone who's, you know, listening, who may be a Scientologist. They probably would have turned this off a while ago now, but (laughs) (laughs) that's not a love letter to Battlefield Earth. But yeah, the the theme of the movie is really, it's kind of troubling. Like, I don't know what they're trying to say. You know, like humans were in bad shape And I guess because of like our hubris or arrogance, we were able to be conquered by this alien species. And the only way that we have a chance of defeating the aliens is by having their knowledge zapped into our brain and then blowing up their planet to reclaim our... It's just like, it's a weird thing where, I don't know, humans have no autonomy or control or power. Right. And it's it's kind of like another strange thing with the storytelling in this. The humans are captured and released and captured and released so many times. And there's even a point where, like, 
the humans have gotten the upper hand on Turl and Johnny has him at gunpoint and should definitely kill him, but doesn't and hands the weapon over to him. And I guess it's all part of Johnny's master plan to get Turl back on his side. But there's just this weird thing of like subjugation and, and people are kind of never really free or they think they're free, but then they're still captured and not to give away the ending of the movie, but that's sort of, it, it touches on that theme also. No. And in that scene, that's, that's where he, um, he ends up giving the gun back to Turl, and then that's the the, the, the um, semantics we're talking about earlier is when he says, you know, I won't kill you, but then Forrest Whitaker kills him, and then he cuts off the lock of hair to give to the brother later. So it's kind of was all his fault. It was. It was totally that guy's death is on Johnny's hands, <laughs> and then there's also some cows that get shot, like a, a cow oh leg. Oh my god! Like, it's just. It's so, I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't get to see that. I mean, we only saw like a, 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 a glimpse of like some legs getting shot a off. A CG leg yeah. getting sort of blown <laughs> but off. But still, but I was like, he just like, just mowed down all these cows or, or buffalo or whatever they were. I think it was cows. But um, yeah, it was just weird choices. A lot of weird choices. Well, and I think in that scene too is where Turl puts the explosive neck yeah. brace on Chrissy. Yes. So that's supposed to be now his leverage against Johnny, which I think is why he hands over the gun. Although at this point I could be getting that wrong because even though we just watched the movie <laughs> uh, about an hour ago, details are starting to get sort of fuzzy. Now we come to this point a lot where you know, I don't know if I'm just not taking good enough notes or if we're not just paying enough attention, but we always seem to run into this problem right at that sort of transition into the third act where we're like, did this happen here? Or wait, is this no? <laughs> like we start to get chronological things all mixed up. And this movie is really hard to keep the chronological things together because the whole fucking movie doesn't make any sense. So you're like <laughs> desperately trying to piece together i've noticed it before but this is the only time where i can like i, I fully identify with it because like <laughs> <laughs> this movie is just i i just watched it again today too and like it it's like gossamer you know like there's just nothing to hold on to so i really don't know the order of events i just know that like there's supposed to be this arbitrary seven day countdown we never really get a sense that like days are elapsing at all like it all still right. seems like no. it's one day and then somehow johnny gets the the explosive collar off of chrissy's neck yeah and then the yeah. humans are able to sort of do their jailbreak and then they somehow go and get all the jets and they come back and they start attacking the cyclo base in denver the whole plan if i remember correctly it, that johnny stumbles upon is like if we destroy the dome over denver the breath gas that the cyclos need to survive will be gone and then they'll suffocate and yes. the humans will be able to breathe in there and so that that's like the crux of the plan that's they got to destroy the dome and they also have to they've set up earlier in the movie some sort of teleportation technology which looks awful it's like it just they just sort of blur the screen yeah and you can't even tell where the teleportation device is it's like a slab of concrete i think like on the set like it's not even like a thing they're yeah. just like we need to put it in the teleporter like what teleporter all i see is like a slab of concrete over there yeah that's the teleporter if you say so <laughs> 
I, I would have loved to have been at that production meeting, like where like, oh, so let's see the teleporter. What do we got? The guy like takes this model of just a concrete slab. This is it. This is the teleporter. They're technology is so advanced that that's all they need i mean at one point i think they are passing like blank sheets of metal across to each other and saying that they're documents or something did you notice that yeah it i did it's it's like turl uh, or no uh, Kerr. sorry it's hard to keep them straight sometimes but <laughs> Kerr gets this metal rectangle and he's looking at it and we have no idea what it is and then only a minute later in the scene when turl comes in and says what are you doing with that picture? I'm like, oh, okay, that's a picture. And it was right. like a picture of the mine. And, and But yeah, it, it, the technology makes no sense. And even like the axes, that are the pickaxes that they give the humans to mine, they're these enormous, cumbersome, overly complicated things that look so heavy, they defeat the purpose of like having a pickaxe. Like you can't even lift it. It just, nothing in this movie makes sense. Top to bottom. And their video recordings are like in these things that look like gaskets. Yes. <laughs> and at, at this point in human history, we'd already had like DVDs. Like we're way ahead of these assholes. That's the thing. Even if like they, if the Cyclos invaded in 1982, when the book was published, the technology that Earthlings had then is so far advanced than what the Cyclos have in the year 3000. Yeah. Like VHSs are better than that. <laughs> Ridiculous. <thing. laughs> but yeah, this whole whole climax is just a mess of like events occurring that I can't keep straight. The only thing that I can kind of focus on is the heroic sacrifice of Carlo because right. Carlo has been tasked with destroying the dome so that you know the air the what the breathe air or what what is it the breath the breath gas <laughs> you know breath gas breath gas that they breathe will be destroyed there's a big sort of wannabe star wars aerial battle where we're getting what a harrier jets versus spaceships or whatever it's that era of cg where it's like the cg is Good enough to pass for the time, but now it looks horribly dated. Now it looks like sci-fi channel level stuff. I mean, it, I don't remember seeing it, how I felt seeing it in the theater, but watching it now, uh, uh, today, it felt like whatever budget they had, they were saving for the finale. But it, it, even that is not, it, it doesn't live up. The effects aren't there. It wouldn't have been mind-blowing then, but it would have been acceptable. Whereas now, I don't think it's acceptable anymore. Now it just looks like crap. But yeah, so we're getting this dog fight that's impossible to follow or, or to care about. But Carlo does crash his whatever he's flying into the dome. But he's sort of stuck in the top of the dome. So we get this, you know, tense, quote-unquote, scene where he's got a get a bazooka that he's like hanging upside down in the cockpit. It looks like he pulls the bazooka out of his pocket. Like the, the, right. the framing is so weird. <laughs> and then he looks over his shoulder and in the rest of the cockpit, there's all this like fuel and explosives. And we know it's fuel and explosives because somebody has stenciled the words fuel and explosives right. on whatever these packages are behind him. And so he's, he makes the noble choice and he fires the bazooka into the, his own cockpit to blow it all up. But I think before that, he says piece of cake, which has become sort of like yeah, yeah. His, his recurring line. But again, 
Yes. How do these humans even know what cake is? Because clearly right? they're not making it in their village. There was a couple times, like, there was some dialect between the humans where I was like, how would you, like, how would you, that be a reference point to you? Like, if you're living the way that you're living that we saw, like, you know, things have really reverted back to, like, primitive level. Like, how do you have a reference point of piece of cake? Or, like... He said, like, one of the guys was like, you know, get the hell out of here, man. Yeah. And it was just like, just the way he said it was just like, it just, it just didn't fit. Look, some things have just stuck around, like piece of cake. <laughs> like, people just still say it. Euclidean geometry. Right. Maybe they still say, get jiggy yeah. with it, too. I mean, we, we don't know what things have stood the test of time. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, but is it really, though, if you think about it, is it really that heroic of a sacrifice for Carlo? Because he's stuck on the top of this dome. Like, it's not like he's going to be able to go anywhere. Like, it, he couldn't get out of the cockpit. Maybe he was trying to free himself. Right. So I'll just point this bazooka at the seatbelt and uh, blast myself out. <laughs> I like to think that Carlo was being a hero because I like Carlo. I like Carlo. He's like possibly my favorite character in the movie, yeah. if, if he can be called a character. That's the best part of this climax. The rest of the climax, the other two elements that we get, well, there's actually three other elements. There's this really bad land battle where now all the humans are like full-on rebel forces and they're revolting and they're all wearing their like the jumpsuits and they've got guns and they're fighting and what's really confusing about this is they're all fighting i think and you know shooting at the cyclos but then at some point after this battle's been going on turl's like gets on the intercom and is like execute all the humans <laughs> like were they not executing the humans during this whole battle like did they, did they need this instruction hasn't the war started already it's clear turl is not like a great manager you know like he's great with <laughs> no. semantics he can be really sassy but delegating is just not a strong suit and where was he during all this like he turl kind of flies in in one of these aircraft later on but like where was he? He's he's a poor manager. That's exactly what he is. He's not present. He doesn't know what's going on. And like, yeah, where the hell was Turl all this time? And coming in now with like execute all the humans. Thanks. Okay, sure. Thanks for the direction, Turl. But you know what? If there was a DVD extra on the DVD called like Turl's Time and we got to see <laughs> what Turl was doing when he wasn't doing what he should be doing. I would watch it and it would probably would be more amusing than the movie itself. But yeah, like, I mean, he comes back and then like him and Johnny get in this fight and, you know, they sort of have their like confrontation. And that's when Turl's like kill all the humans, but also this ginger guy who I'm sure has a name in the movie, <laughs> but I never know who he is. He was the guy that almost got killed before. He's He's been a character in pretty much every scene with humans, but he barely gets any lines and he's his name is never said as far as I can remember. The guy with the shoulder length blonde hair. That's the one you're talking about, right? And he's got a kind of reddish hair. Yeah, I'm sure we're talking about the same yeah, guy. He's, yeah, he's the one. His brother was the one who got his head blown off. Exactly. And Johnny gave him the hair yes. to make up for That's that. Right. That character that we love so dearly. He is sent into the teleportation device with the nuclear bomb and he heroically sacrifices himself too so we get two heroic sacrifices in one climax which is probably more than you should have in there but he gets teleported all the way to fucking cyclo <laughs> 
he sets off the bomb and their entire planet blows up. Like their whole atmosphere ignites, their whole planet blows up. So really tidily destroying all of Cyclo. And yeah, and we get this one sort of look at Cyclo and it's, you know, pretty terrible looking. I don't know why Troll was in such a rush to go retire there. It's not much better than Earth. <laughs> it's a kind of a nice shade of purple, but that's basically all I've got that's going it. for them. It looks just like a big factory. Yeah, it looks like a big factory and they've got the plumes of fire <laughs> in the foreground. And I guess if you're a Cyclo, that's heaven on Earth. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the whole planet blows up and then we just get this really lame sort of fight between Turl and Johnny and it looks like Turl's gonna defeat Johnny because he gets the gun on him or whatever but Johnny has snuck on the explosive collar onto Turl's arm and detonates it and then Turl loses his arm. They've made so much hay about this explosive neck collar and even (laughs) in the middle of this fight between Johnny and Turl they do a quick flashback to the collar coming off of Chrissy's neck so we know what it is. Yeah. And then he snaps the collar onto Turl's arm, which is pretty noticeable, but Turl doesn't pay it any attention. He's nope. throttling Johnny. And then Johnny says, uh, you can kill me, but whatever you do, something effective, like don't don't hurt Chrissy. She's loving my life. And then Turl says, oh, thanks for reminding me, rat brain, or something like that. And, and so that gives Turl the idea that he's going to, doesn't realize the explosive is on his arm, but he pushes the detonator. His arm blows off and he has no reaction whatsoever. Right. He doesn't scream in pain. He, does, he doesn't even nope. look at it. It's just, oh, there that goes. Yeah, he's like, hmm. Yeah. Curious. <laughs> yeah, total Brer Fox, Brer Rabbit yeah. moment of like, please don't throw me in that briar patch. And then the arm is gone and no one cares. Calling back to the explosive collar brings up the fact that the really bad choice that they make is they do that really cheesy bits of dialogue will come back and be sort of delayed and echoing like so that you know what the cue is. Oh, I should be remembering this or whatever. I mean, even at the time that this movie was made, that device was hokey as hell. It is hokey as hell, but it's freaking necessary in this kind of because like what the (laughs) hell is going on? Like, I mean, yeah, it's hokey as all get out, but like I need it. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's what we're doing here because who who knows what's going on? Like so, so messy, so lost. It's true. If they wouldn't have shown that little flashback of Chrissy's collar, I would have had no idea what Johnny (laughs) just put on Turl's arm. And there's even, I I wonder, it it is so ham-fisted, like to your earlier your point Sebastian about like reshoots and stuff and editing like they must have added these things at the last second to try and make some sense of what's going on my suspicion was that they had some sort of assembly cut that was probably four hours long that was total and utter dog shit (laughs) and they were just like we just need to cut this thing tightest we possibly can this movie had historically bad test screenings it had historically bad press screenings the stink was on this thing way before it ever came out like everybody knew it was terrible i mean you said yourself like you you knew it was terrible yeah like the only reason anybody saw this was to laugh at it basically i mean it was that bad it's it's been called the um, Plan 9 of outer, from Outer Space of its day. And I think that is pretty apt just in terms of the kind of bad movie it is. 
Nines. Although I would probably argue Plan Nines a more fun movie. Way more fun to watch than this. To the best of my knowledge, nobody died while watching Plan Nine. So that's... <laughs> To the best of your knowledge, we may be able to disprove that. So one of the writers of the screenplay, his name is J.D. Shapiro. And I think most notable that I'm aware of what he has done um, was he was one of the the writers for um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is fun. So he was like a comedy guy. He's a comedy guy. Yeah. So I don't know why we got brought into this, but what he had to say about this film, it wasn't as I intended promise no one sets out to make a train wreck actually comparing it to a train wreck isn't really fair to train wrecks because people actually (laughs) want to watch those (laughs) and then he continued in another quote to say my script was very very different than what ended up on the screen my screenplay was darker grittier and had very compelling story with rich characters what my screenplay didn't have was a slow motion at every turn, Dutch tilts, campy dialogue, aliens and kiss boots, and everyone wearing Bob Marley wigs. <laughs> now looking back at the movie with fresh eyes, I can't help but be strangely proud of it because out of all the sucky movies, mine is the suckiest. So he seems to have a very good sense of humor about this. Well, yeah, you got to. I mean, what are you going to do? Though I will argue that... Probably those things wouldn't have been in the script anyway. He's talking about like editing choices and yeah. production design. Sure. So. Well, it's hard to imagine somebody who wrote that witty, you know, encapsulation of the movie could have actually written this movie. So I, I don't, <laughs> as a general rule, I don't like to, you know, make fun of other writers because I've certainly written things that haven't come out well. Sure. And, you know, sure, other people get their fingerprints on it. And so the credited writers may not be the ones to blame for what we ultimately see in the theaters. But yep. it's strange that they hired a comedy writer to work on this. And I think for me, the only funny parts in the movie are Kelly Preston's long tongue. And there's one part, which I think is a blooper that they kept in where John Travolta bangs his head on the ceiling and it looks like they just they kept it in he's arguing with Forrest Whitaker and he says uh ow crap lousy ceiling and something about the the man animals were supposed to fix that yeah he's like I told them to fix this it may have just been really great ad-libbing on John Travolta's part and they're like oh let's keep it in the movie I felt that the don't you want lunch was hilarious and I I, I don't know if it was attended to attended to be or not but it's it's was the highlight of the film for me. So that was the funniest moment. There's some cool shots of Barry Pepper running through a lot of debris. There's actually quite a few shots of that throughout the movie. And uh, it's, I think kind of uh, something he didn't really account for in his plan to blow up the dome was that all his fellow humans are going to be under the dome and potentially crushed by all the debris that fell, but whatever, he only had seven days and just learned strategy through the learning machine. So (laughs) we got to be, give him a pass. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because there is so much slow motion in the movie. Like this movie way overplays the slow motion card. And like sometimes it's regular slow motion and then sometimes it's that like drop frame Mm -hmm. slow motion. They like use both types, which is really discombobulating. But yeah, that scene where he's running and getting shot at with all the debris feels very much like the climax of The Matrix, which had come out the year before. I don't know if they were aware of the movie when they were filming this, the shot in 99, so they may not have even seen it. Or maybe somebody on the production knew the 
people on the production of the matrix and they're like, you know, it looks cool if you slow everything down and shoot a bunch of stuff and then all the particulate goes up in the air and it's cool. But yeah, it seems very of the time. Like that was something we were seeing a lot in action movies. That's crazy. If matrix came out a year before this and they're both Warner brothers movies and the difference in the quality between the effects is staggering. We end up with Turl as a prisoner of the humans. They don't kill him. They decide to keep, Turl prisoner. They keep him prisoner in Fort Knox for some reason. So he's got a cage right in the middle of all these stacks and stacks of gold. It's like he's the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders of the Lost <laughs> Ark or something. <laughs> like they're just going to keep him in this Fort Knox and they're talking to him like, we're going to keep you alive. So now that like he's leverage, I guess, in case the Cyclos come back. Because if the Cyclos come back, like, what are they going to do? I don't think Johnny understands leverage because, like, (laughs) (laughs) what leverage? Turl was terrible at his job. He was hated by humans and Cyclos alike. And, like, it's kind of his fault that things, that the whole planet got blown up. So It's totally his fault. If Cyclos did arrive, why would they want to save him? I think the first person they'd kill would be Turl and then turn on the man animals. Yeah, I don't know what Turl's buying them in the next installment, but there he is, their prisoner. And um, and we find out that Care is now on the human side. He switched sides and he's going to be on our team from now on. But apparently, I think the reason why that we're left in this situation is because, believe it or not, this was intended as part one, oh. sort of like, you know, the Dune movie that just came out. <laughs> this is just like that in that it's part one and there was supposed to be part two. Where do you go from blowing up the entire Cyclo planet? Wouldn't you save that for the end of part two, at least? You have to get a hashtag going, release the uh, Battlefield Earth 2 cut. <laughs> I can't even picture what the fuck that movie is. I can't even imagine it, and I don't know if I want to. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's the end of the movie. The budget for this movie was $73 million, which was a lot in 2000, and it ended up grossing worldwide altogether only $21 million. So it was a huge, huge huge loss of money and they think it was really closer to 80 million dollars and there was like 20 million spent on advertising and everything so it was a huge bomb but even more so than that was just the absolutely you know scathing critical reaction i mean it's been declared you know one of the worst movies of all time pretty much unanimously but uh let me ask you uh since you're the guest richard why do you think this failed (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I think it ultimately comes down to leverage. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I really have been thinking about this because there are all the obvious answers, right? Like it's, it doesn't look great. The effects weren't even good for the time. And just like from a storytelling standpoint, I say this not having read the book, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know if the flaws in the structure come from the book or from the adaptation into the screenplay, but there are just some basic things that are missing, like character names and establishing relationships. And like you said, Sebastian, setting the table, there's like all this background stuff that we need to know so that as an audience, we can get invested in it. And maybe they had all that and they, as part of them cutting it back down to like a manageable runtime, they... Maybe they cut a little too close to the bone, but I don't think so. 
everything that could be bad in this movie is bad. I don't know how else to say it. And I, I don't like delight in kicking this movie that's already been reviled for decades now, but there's, and I, I always, I think one of the things I love most about your podcast is that you genuinely love movies that most people think are bad and you find something positive in them. And that's, that's kind of the way I feel like I, my dad is the same way. He watches movies that most people think are terrible, but he finds something good in them. Like we saw Dune, the, the David Lynch one in the theaters together. And before we saw that, he'd gotten me all the toys from Galoob and I was expecting the next Star Wars like everyone was talking about. And then we saw it and I didn't get it. I was like seven years old. I just did not get it. And But my dad liked it. And despite my mom's pleas, he would just watch it on home video at home over and over and over again. (laughs) And then he's like, and then he's like, uh, you know, you should watch it. I was in film school. He's like, you should watch it again. Give it a second chance. It's really pretty good. And I watched this second. I'm like, man, this is actually great. So, you know, there's, there are those movies out there. Unfortunately for me, Battlefield Earth is not one of those movies. It's not even one. Like, I think like on your show, you have movies that are maybe overlooked gems and you have other ones that are so bad they're good. And I don't think Battlefield Earth is either of those things. Like, this is not one that I can pop in for a laugh whenever I want because it is just so incomprehensible and mystifying that it's ultimately an exercise in frustration for me, not entertainment. I agree with that 100%. And like this should be a movie that I should want to return to and enjoy because it actually has things in it that I kind of like. I mean, like I said, I'm a huge fan of post-apocalyptic movies and fiction. And there are some elements here that I think are fun. And I, I do enjoy John Travolta's performance just for the sheer insanity of it. But unfortunately, there's just so much else that's incomprehensible, as you pointed out, that you can't really come back to this and enjoy it. This is only, I think, the second time or third time I've watched this all the way through, which is saying a lot because you've listened to the podcast and you've seen how many terrible movies I watch, <laughs> movies that some people would think are terrible anyway. Well, that you as a couple subject each other to, sorry, I spoke over you, but just like, <laughs> I, to, Sebastian, you make Jen watch terrible movies. Jen, you made Sebastian watch, what was it, Poltergeist 3 or something like that? Like, yeah. you guys are perfect for each other. I mean, she drags me to all every haunted house movie that comes out, and my patience right. is certainly tested in that regard. <laughs> As much as I love horror movies, there's only so many times I can see a child be possessed by a demon. That's neither here nor there. It takes a lot to have this many things in it that I objectively enjoy to be a movie that I'm not going to watch a bunch of times and try to find something good in it. That speaks to how poorly made it is. And I think that's really what it comes down to is it's terribly made. It really is. And there's no way you can be somebody who is a movie fan who understands how movies work and are supposed to look and how stories are supposed to be told visually. There's no way you can watch this movie and think to yourself, no, this is pretty good. Like it's no, it's objectively, objectively bad. And that's why it failed. Yeah. Even for a lay person, I think who, you know, didn't go to film school or doesn't consume as many movies as maybe we do. Like, 
all of the like the whole point of a Dutch tilt is to create like um, psychological uncertainty or dread or discomfort yeah. in your audience. And so if your whole movie is designed to elicit that response, like who wants to feel uncomfortable for two hours? But that's the way I feel when I watch this. Like it's everything looks off. None of these are places, like I said before, that I'd want to live in or ever aspire to. Like it's just it's just kind of a, a gross looking movie and the designs of the humans of the aliens they have they've like colored the front maybe six teeth in john travolta's mouth but not the rest of them like yeah. there's nothing in this that it's like oh i want to dress up like that for halloween except the cod piece well that yeah <laughs> but just the cod piece i don't need the rest of the the cyclo outfit this is the first time i had seen it and i honestly i really wanted to like it in the sense that you know i i knew it wasn't going to be good but I was hoping that it would at least be a, f a fun watch. And it wasn't, you know, there's not much more for me to add. You guys pretty much covered it, but it just, it feels like there wasn't a lot of um, care put into this, which is strange, especially for, you know, John Travolta kind of making this a, a pet project, like really wanting to get this done. I mean, it can't be all on his shoulders. I understand that, but it just doesn't feel like, is a lot of half-baked, just kind of messy, and it's just was really hard to give a shit about anything as you're watching it. You know, there's just nothing invested in in anyone or anything. And nope. uh, I, you know, I really wanted it to be because I don't like to bag on movies like we were talking about earlier. It's like the, I can usually find something uh in some of these films that is 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 worthwhile you know well the whole movie may be shit but there's this and even though there was you know a couple one-liners that are pretty great i couldn't with good conscience recommend this to someone based on those two couple things that were pretty fun there's not a living soul on earth that i would recommend <laughs> no to. i couldn't i can't yeah like honestly not in good faith no. and i can recommend a lot of things to a lot of people yeah. but there's nothing here that i could ever recommend to anybody Unless it's like the ring where you're afraid of this curse and you have to make somebody else watch Battlefield Earth or you're going to die in seven days. That's, I think, the only scenario where I think it's okay to do it. That's a completely valid scenario. And I appreciate that, Richard. You know what I'll sort of say in closing about Battlefield Earth? And that is, you know, one of the sort of tenets of our podcast is we look at, you know, movies that didn't do well at the box office and we ask, you know, was that really fair? that this didn't do well. And at least we can say with Battlefield Earth that the fact that it failed terribly was fair. That was the fair result. Justice was served. We don't get a lot of justice in this world a lot of times, but I think justice was served with Battlefield Earth. Let's hope that they never try to remake it, and let's hope that they don't go anywhere near this property ever, ever again. Although I would like a Turl action figure. Apparently they made Turl action figures that, like, say things from the movie, like, you're all nincompoops, or something like that. I, I, I kept a running list of all the, the insults that, <laughs> that Turl and the other Cyclos had. There's uh, Skullbone Man Animal, of course, Rat Brain. Crap holes. Uh, yeah. There's uh, crap head. That's different than crap hole. I think that's it. They just say those kind of in sort of different combinations. 
So yeah, I'd like a toy like that. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be pretty sweet. They're out there somewhere. Maybe after this podcast, I'll go scan eBay for a turl. It can't be that much money, right? Do you push the cod piece to make the, the lines come out of his? <laughs> that's the button. That would be amazing. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to go turn on my picto cam and snack on my favorite food, rat. And then I'm going to use this Zoom chat as leverage on both of you. <laughs> that about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, Check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoltrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. <laughs> <laughs>